There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm in a hurry to get things done. Oh, I rush and rush until life's no fun. All I really gotta do is live and die, but I'm in a hurry and don't Welcome to Right Lane, a podcast of the Tampa Bay Times. Each week, Times reporter Lane DeGregory discusses her stories and answers your questions. The focus is on craft. My name is Maria Carrillo, and I'm the enterprise editor at the... Today, we're lucky to bring you a recording of a recent session held in Norway at one of our favorite narrative conferences. The speaker is Gina Moore, who has reported from more than 30 countries, working for the New York Times, BuzzFeed, and as a freelance journalist. Her stories have appeared in The New Yorker, The Atlantic, and Newsweek, among others. We'll attach links to the stories discussed on our podcast page, which you can find at tampabay.com slash narratives slash right lane. Today's topic, narrative on deadline. Good morning. Um, <laughs> I've never heard anyone read that biography out loud before, twice nominated for the Pulitzer Prize is what you say when you don't win. <laughs> so I, like, I've changed this title three times since I've been standing here, and uh, I had narrative on deadline, and I thought, well, that's a false promise. I kind of want to talk about using narrative elements in deadline-driven work, and sometimes that might mean putting fully formed features narrative features into the newspaper or on the website in an ungodly short period of time. Uh, but more often, that's probably going to be pulling little tips and, and tricks and narrative tools and trying them out inside your otherwise fairly typical news copy. And um, yeah, so that's, that, that's where we're going to start. But first, I want to I wanna like have a little chat about what do we really mean when we're talking about narrative journalism? And I don't mean from a craft perspective, like what counts as a proper narrative feature and what doesn't. I mean, like what, what are we trying to do with readers when we're using these tools? Um, this is the front page of the New York Times from the day that, uh, well, you can tell, the day that John F. Kennedy was buried uh, in 1963. And it looks kind of exactly like how you'd expect, you know, the paper of records front page to look. And this, oh yeah, it came out nice and big. This is their lead story about the burial. Um, the headline kind of tells you everything about the position of the news and the news voice. We're, we're already heavily in hagiographic territory. Um, but I just want to read out loud to have sort of like the rhythm and sound of what the austere and authoritative account of Kennedy's burial feels like to, to readers. 
The body of John Fitzgerald Kennedy was returned today to the American Earth. I like that it's ours, by the way. The final resting place of the 35th president of the United States was on an open slope among the dead of the nation's wars in Arlington National Cemetery, within sight of the Lincoln Memorial. Mr. Kennedy's body was carried from the Capitol to St. Matthew's Catholic Cathedral for a requiem mass. From there, in a cortege, it was taken to the cemetery. During the day, a million people stood in the streets to watch Mr. Kennedy's last passage. Across the land, millions more, almost the entire population of the country at one time or another, saw the solemn ceremonies on television. At the pontifical low mass said by Car uh, Richard Cardinal Cushing of Boston, da 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 And then in this paragraph, you'll see references to President Johnson, the President of France, the Ethiopian Emperor, the Belgian King, the Greek Queen, and lots of other fancy people. Kind of, where, are, where is it? I counted it out and now I forgot. One, two, three paragraphs below that. The eight body bearers who had placed Mr. Kennedy's coffin above his open grave folded the flag that had covered it for three days. It was presented to Mrs. Kennedy, who stood erect and still, her head covered by a long black veil. And I wanted to point that out because that's the first point we find out. I mean, we knew, but in this particular story, that Kennedy had a wife and she was at the funeral. Um, so this is doing a very good job of what it's supposed to do, right? I have, if, if you were the editor of this piece, you'd probably be delighted. There's a lot of really good detail um, and color and certainly a scene is set in all these kinds of ideas that sound narrative-esque. Um, so that's what the New York Times did. There's a newspaper in New York, RIP, called Newsday. Uh, it was like a Burroughs newspaper. It was like the working man's newspaper to the hoity New York Times, right? I mean, we have a lot of working men's newspapers, but uh, this was one of them. There's a columnist there called Jimmy Breslin, and this is what he wrote. Clifton Pollard was pretty sure he was going to work on Sunday. So when he woke up at 9 a.m. in his three-room apartment on Corcoran Street, he put on khaki overalls before going into the kitchen for breakfast. His wife, Hetty, made bacon and eggs for him. Pollard was in the middle of eating them when he received the phone call he'd been expecting. It was from Mazo Kowalich, who was the foreman of gravediggers at Arlington National Cemetery, which is where Pollard works for a living. Polly, could you please be here by 11 o'clock this morning? I guess you know what it's for. He hung up the phone, finished his breakfast, and left his apartment so he could spend Sunday digging a grave for John Fitzgerald Kennedy. And I can't think of any better example by way of contrast about what we're trying to do when we do narrative journalism than the way this sounds and where it starts and where it positions us as a reader vis-a-vis -vis not just a story that's unfolding in front of us, but the events of the world, right? And because it's so delightful, I just want, I want to share a little bit more of the Breslin piece. How many of you guys know this piece already? I don't know if it travels across oceans. Okay. In, in, you know, back home, we all study this in journalism school, so it's kind of fun to bring it to a place where you think maybe people haven't seen it. It becomes my trick instead of Breslin's trick. This is at, the, at, the, at, the, at Arlington as he begins to work. Leaves covered the grass. When the yellow teeth of the reverse hoe first bit into the ground, the leaves made a threshing sound, which could be heard above the motor of the machine. When the bucket came up with its first scoop of dirt, Metzler, the cemetery superintendent, walked over and looked at it. That's nice soil, Metzler said. I'd like to save a little of it, Pollard said. 
the machine made some tracks in the grass over here, and I'd like to sort of fill them in and get some good grass growing there. You know, I'd, I'd like to have everything, you know, nice. Skips a bit. Pollard is 42. He's a slim man with a mustache who was born in Pittsburgh and served as a, a private in the 352nd Engineers Battalion in Burma. He's an equipment operator, grade 10, which means he gets $3.01 an hour. One of the last to serve President John Fitzgerald Kennedy, who was the 35th president of this country, was a working man who earns $3.01 an hour and said it was an honor to dig his grave. Now, there's a little bit of the hagiography hey of the working man that runs through the piece that's not entirely to my taste, but we'll let it go. Um, I, there's, there's, there's a couple of things in here that's worth noting, too. You know, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, the, who was the 35th president of the United States, it's a throwaway, right? Because he knows that we know that. We got to acknowledge it somewhere in the piece, but we don't have the grand sentence that says, the 35th president is being buried today, right? Um, Arlington National Cemetery, uh, at the bottom of the first paragraph, which is going to be the site of all of the sort of pomp and circumstance that is, 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 is relayed both in text and context, right? In words and in voice in the New York Times piece. Arlington National Cemetery, it just has a little positive here, which is where Pollard works for a living. But that little phrase is, is, is the whole story. That's where everything's going to happen excuse me, and why everything is possible. And these are just like bits dropped in as we move along in what is otherwise the story of a man doing his job and the contrast between the man doing his job and the other man who died doing his, right? It's, I just think it's brilliant. Um, and not far after this uh, uh, introduction of Pollard, Breslin writes, yesterday morning at 11.15, Jacqueline Kennedy started toward the grave. And that, I just wanted to add that because it's a beautiful contrast to me that Mrs. Kennedy's essentially invisible in the New York Times version of the story, but the funeral starts for, for Breslin's version when Jacqueline Kennedy starts to move. Just everything about not where, not just where he's looking in terms of you know, setting the scene and where is the camera and all of that. We're looking at the backhoe dig into the earth. We're thinking of it as teeth, right? We've got all this complex writing stuff going on, but who he's looking at and why, and why that compels us as readers, I find really inspiring. So, I think there's a lot of things that we're doing when we're writing um, narrative journalism or when we're thinking about narrative uh, material that's good for narrative stories. We're trying to get people to stop being so damn bureaucratic and start experiencing the world and the news that gives it to them as human beings, right? We're moving from official capacities and our feelings as, you know, humans who have to make decisions based on the stock market or what the, the parliament is saying today over to people who have intimate and real personal lives and think that way too. We're kind of reconnecting the like normal human part of our experience with this like, you know, Weberian conditioned thing that we're all asked to live in all of the time and asking readers to join us on a journey that shows we're all these same, we're, th we're this person all the time, right? We can give the news that way too. I, I'm sure, I, I missed it yesterday, but I'm sure Mark Kramer, who taught me pretty much everything I know, um, must have uh, uh, talked yesterday in his session about uh, the Citizen Sentinel voice. You did that, right, Mark? 
I'm making it up. Fake news, guys, fake news. Um, so this is sort of the purpose, and I think it's magical. I think, uh, more than that, I think it's like a moral imperative. When I encounter a newspaper in the morning, I feel like I am being asked to drop everything about my affective self and how I feel as a human in relation to other humans to whom things are happening. And I'm told to think like rationally and from the perspective of the national interest of whoever it is has written the article or whatever country they come from. And narrative journalism says we're starting in a totally different place with a completely different mission. But that requires a couple of things. It requires that, that your readers trust you at least a little bit, at least enough to start. They don't have to trust you enough to get through it. They have to trust you enough to start, and then you have to keep the trust and earn the trust with sort of every sentence you write, so no pressure. Um, and they'll trust you enough at the beginning for a couple of different reasons. It might be the imprimatur of your paper. I could do a lot of things at the New York Times that no one would let me do at Buzz, well, not no one would let me do at BuzzFeed, but that were taken more seriously when they were done in the New York Times than when they were done for BuzzFeed. Um, so it might be your imprimatur, the history of your paper, it might be the standing of your editor, it might be the strength of your own reporting, you've spent three years on a story, no one knows it better than you. Um, very often, what newspapers are using in order to do this and establish this trust, for whatever purpose, narrative journalism or not, is the authority of the voice, right? This voice of God thing that at least dominates American news. I don't know if there's an equivalent in Norwegian, um, but we all have this shared thing we're mimicking, right? And we're mimicking it because that's what we've decided authority sounds like. So you can displace that authority with your own voice, but you have to work when you do that. And part of the thing you have to do when you're doing that work is establish a shared context. Narrative doesn't work if you and your reader are not both in on the joke, so to speak, right? And I mean, very often it's not a joke. We said Lane's presentation yesterday, how many little girls died, right? Like in the course of those slides. True crime stories are like the er genre of narrative journalism. Um, so it's, um, you know, it's not that you're actually telling a funny story, but it's that you all have to be in on the same idea about the, 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 the environment, the, the, the atmosphere of what's happening. That's one of the reasons I think that very often narrative journalism is a dramatic story about cancer, about crime, about a natural disaster, about a massacre. Right, it, it had, those kinds of stories have the tension element, elements built into them that make for naturally good storytelling. Mystery, suspense, um, tension, if you're in the hands of a writer who knows how to deploy them correctly, right? But you can't do anything with that unless you have shared context. And you have shared context in one of two ways. It already exists because you're all in the same community or you establish it somehow quickly in your story. And in, uh, in the example that Lane DeGregory used yesterday, the Tom French uh, lead from Angels and Demons, one of the things I love about that is that we can all sort of share an idea about a crime story like that. The particulars are horrible, we kind of know what we're in for, villain, victims, that sort of thing. And so that widened universe of something we can share and is familiar to all of us is already there. And we're gonna know it's there from the headline and the deck and the teaser on the front cover or the ad that came the week before, right? Like we already have that information. But that lead that, that she used yesterday, I wish I had written it down, um, shrinks that context and brings us into the detective's offices, right? That's the shared context where we begin. And I say all this because 
I think that for two reasons. One, I, I'm always looking, even when I'm doing dutiful news, um, for a way to let readers in to a feeling of shared context about the story. And I suppose I think about this more than a lot of local reporters or even national reporters because I work as a foreign reporter and, and my, I have to assume that my readers don't share my context and I have to find ways to establish a shared context very quickly. And I like to add the challenge of trying to establish a shared context without all the cliches about Africa that have made up foreign correspondence for the last hundred years. You know, no small thing. Um, the other reason I say this is because I'm gonna get down to like nitty gritty, like, like fun, like whirly gig tools that I like to, to, to play with. Um, but I think the best place to do this is in local news. And the best place to experiment with little narrative tricks inside otherwise fairly straightforward news copy and sort of keep your imagination alive by doing it, you as the reporter who has to go to work every day, is in local news. Because you don't have to worry about that, right? You, you know your readers share that context. You have to do much less work than the rest of us would have to do to build that shared context. And you can take advantage of it with more leeway for creativity. If anybody's here with your editor, run that by them first, maybe. Um, and this I saw this morning, I just wanted to share. I think it's an example of shared context gone totally bad. Carnivorous plants eat far more salamanders than scientists thought. I have no idea what's going on here, but I read that and I was like, yeah, I'm not in on the joke. But because I'm not in on the joke, that's really funny. Um, so we have... Oh, the animation didn't work. Okay, it's okay. We have all these like things we're gonna talk about, right, that are like narrative tools and characteristics and, and all these things in our narrative toolbox. We have scene and we have character and we have place, voice, dialogue, interiority, being inside someone's mind, telling details. And what was supposed to happen was like they were all supposed to fade out and the word voice was supposed to like come up. That's what was supposed to happen here. Lane, where's your son? I need help. Um, but the, 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 I think the greatest tool that we have is voice. And I think everything else is secondary to voice. And I also think with like a teeny tiny modicum of change in voice and with very few words, you can do a lot of the work of narrative journalism. So, oh, we, we get there twice. So, okay. That's what, that's what I think the big picture mission is, to like make readers into humans again. And to do that, we have to bring people into a space where the reader, the writer, and the, the, the imagined place of the story are all a shared context. We have lots of tools we can use when we decide to do that. And if you get two years and 30,000 words, you can use all of those, character and detail and all of that, and you'll have time to report for it. But if you're on deadline and something just happened, you're probably not gonna have that. So what I wanna talk, what I wanna do now is go uh, through a couple of things that I've done and show you where and how I've tried to use narrative elements in reporting that is otherwise basically straight news reporting. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Um, in my case, it's foreign correspondence because that's what I do. But, you know, news forms follow news forms. Um, so the first thing is to just identify where you can tell a story and how. And this is, you have to do this on two levels at the same time, right? One is in your mind when you're reporting, and the other is when you sit down to write the story. Um, and this will make your life a little bit more complicated. It's a lot easier not to think this way and just go do the news story, file it. No one is expecting anything more, so off you go, expectations are met, and you go home early, right? Although I can't imagine anyone in this room has ever gone home from work early. Um, so this story, is, this is from a, a piece I did for the Times uh, about the Kenyan election. We had this uh, prolonged electoral period in Kenya, 2017 into 2018. We had a presidential election where the incumbent won, and then the Supreme Court threw out the presidential, threw out the result. So then there was a new campaign, and then the opposition guy decided that he didn't think it was going to be fair. So he was like, I'm not running, I'm kind of running, I'm not running, I'm kind of running. Then we had this other election, and it was like, the election's not fair, because he wasn't running, but he was kind of running, but he wasn't running. And then we had an inauguration, and then <laughs> that's when things really went off the rails. We had, the president got inaugurated, which is what happens, and then the opposition guy was like, yeah, I think I'm gonna inaugurate myself. I'm gonna be the people's president. So then he had his inauguration ceremony, and then the media covered it, and then the government, the real president, got mad, so he shut down the television stations for covering the fake inauguration, which was somehow a security threat. It's like a bad novel, right? Actually, it'd be a really good novel. I would read that novel. Um, but it was real life. And what happened eventually was we were at this political impasse for, I mean, elections in Kenya, elected in most of East Africa, really start before they start, right? The tensions, the negotiations, the effect on the economy. So the country was at a standstill for more than a year. And all these diplomats were flying in to try and negotiate some sort of resolution between these two pretty old dudes whose families have controlled Kenyan politics for like all of Kenyan independent history. And then one day, we woke up and there was like a press release that was like, President Uhuru Kenyatta and opposition figure Raila Odinga shook hands today and came to an agreement. And everyone was like, wait, what? And in the meantime, Politics is like sport in, in Kenya, so everyone had dug in for their guy, and the opposition supporters were protesting at every possible occasion in the street, and the police were shooting at them, although denying they were do it, doing it. And like once a month, there was something that looked like a riot in the capital of Kenya, the biggest economy in East Africa. Well, that's not true. Ethiopia is now the biggest economy in East Africa. But anyway, big deal country, right? So, so we woke up one morning and now like suddenly, okay, we're done with that, right? Like everything moves on. We don't really know what the terms of the agreement are. We're pretty sure Ryla's gonna get some nice posting somewhere. That's usually what happens. Um, but in the meantime, so we all did our dutiful news stories on Friday about this handshake. And I wanted to know how the opposition supporters who live in the slums mostly of Nairobi felt, whether they felt betrayed by this guy who they had thrown in for, and some of them had lost sons for. So I went to a place called Mathare and spent the weekend, uh, <laughs> yeah, these are kind of stories you have to do off the clock. I spent the weekend with the um, uh, families of people who'd been assaulted or killed by police during the election. And it was too deep into the story of Kenyan politics to do a narrative, 
it was raining the day that, that Simon's mother came home from voting to find him beaten by the police kind of thing, right? I also just didn't want to do that African police beat people story again, right? And the, the politics of what was going on were really complicated, and, and that needed to be the focus of the story. I wasn't going to get away with a narrative feature about police violence. But I thought that I could find places to pull that kind of thing in. So um, in this story, it's like very newsy and dutiful. And about halfway, th at the top, you meet this woman called uh, Miss Baluma. And about halfway through, you find out what happened to her son. I'm just going to read this quickly and then talk a little bit about the language. After Miss Baluma's son, Victor, died, she and her surviving son pooled their day laborers' wages. He was a driver. She washes clothes. So they could bribe Nairobi City morgue to keep Victor's body in good condition until the family could afford to bury him in their ancestral home in Western Kenya. Her surviving son soon lost his job, and now Miss Baluma's $2 in daily wages keeps her family, including Victor's widow and two-year-old daughter, sheltered but not always fed. Their neighbor, whose husband was also shot by the police, couldn't keep up with the $25 monthly rent and was evicted, Miss Baluma said. No one knows what happened to her. Um, and I've... I've gone through and, and, and kind of color-coded the language. Because I think of this as like a great compromise between like a child of narrative journalism who just like cannot be contained and the newspaper of record that for 150 years has been written in the voice of God, right? Um, so the green is news voice, surviving son, day laborer's wages. Why do we do that when we're writing news? Why do we put this like... It, we turn like important verbs into adjectives, put them before nouns, and call it a day. Like, what's going on there? Um, and then I, 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 not so much out of calculation as instinct, I think, I try to counter that with more human language. He was a driver, she washes clothes, right? In news voice, that would sound different. Um, but balancing them in a way, having you know, one and then the other, having a little waltz, I thought gave it a little bit more humanity. The green sentence, I think, is, for me, all news voice, even though it's still telling a story. And then the next sentence, couldn't keep up with the $25 monthly rent, is largely what I think of as my narrative voice. And it slipped right in the story, and it worked really well, and we all went on with our lives. Um, so the point of this is like finding little, little nuggets that you can use to tell a story where you can, even inside of everything else, right? He was a driver, she washes clothes. That, that's not a story, but it's, but it's almost a set of characters in like five words. Um, the other way you can do this is being, being aware in your reporting about what you can do with attribution. Attribution is like the great, like, you know, controversy in narrative journalism, right? Like, how do we know? Do, we talked about it yesterday. Do we have enough information to be inside someone's head? How do we know that we've really got it right? What do we do? How do we tell the reader we know what we know? Are they going to trust us? Oh, my God. We can be paralyzed by all of this. This is from the same story. And um, this, this, this section comes after a point where I say, the police had the following to say about accusations. And the police were like, we did nothing. And the courts haven't said we've done anything, so you can stop calling me, was basically the feeling. Um, and, and so I'm going to read. Anna and Yango Agalo doesn't need a court to tell her what happened. I saw it with my own eyes, she said defiant, defiantly, gesturing to the space in her home in Mathare, an informal settlement in Nairobi, where she said she found the police beating her son, Christophe Wino, and his best friend, Silas Labo, both 17. 
Witnesses say the police went house to house in Mathari, where Mr. Odinga enjoyed strong support, smashing in doors and terror, Odinga's the, the opposition guy, smashing in doors and terrorizing anyone they found. Video evidence supports their, uh, their accounts. Ms. Agalo said she demanded an explanation from the officers who beat her son and her friend. Did you vote? She remembered an officer asking, in her, asking her in reply. She said yes. And now you people are saying your votes have been stolen, she remembered him saying. That is why we, were, we are here. Um, and so there's, I mean, we've got like the tiniest, littlest moment of dialogue here, right? Like a great narrative trick. And the only reason it's possible is because of these attributions. If we were able to, if, if this was a whole narrative piece, the whole setup and method of kind of like showing the reader what you're doing would be different and we wouldn't have she remembered an officer asking, right? It would be a much simpler and more straightforward attribution. But if you can, can, can simplify, it's a little clunky, but if you can simplify the clunky just enough, you can get these little bits in. And the, the other um, colors and, and underlines, I mean, this whole thing is set up to get to that moment of dialogue, right? The first sentence is about essentially her standing as an authority in her own attribution. Nobody needs to tell her what happened. And I was really lucky that she said I saw it with my own eyes. She said she found witnesses say video evidence. So it's not just her. We're not just standing on her word alone, right? But all of that is in order to get to that moment of dialogue, which replicated what I heard from bunches and bunches of people, not only on that day that I was reporting, but I've been reporting this for a while, right? Um, but, but all of that is to say what's going on here, the narrative trick here is attribution. And the reason we're using that, 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 that trick is to get to this moment of dialogue. And it doesn't do much, but it does more than if I had just paraphrased it, right? I think. For me, it's more powerful to hear her memory of this police officer's voice than to say, the poli you know, residents say police were retaliating against them for opposition support, right? That doesn't, that doesn't feel human to me. So. Those are like little characteristics you can use. The, the idea of unfolding something on time, giving hints of, p of character, hints of dialogue, wherever you can. The other thing you can do is obviously use your own, use your voice. And uh, there's voice in, 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 in some of the pieces we were talking about too, but, um, the, and the greatest place for this obviously in a story is the lead. That's where you have your greatest flexibility, right? Like your, your reader is most open to a moment of creativity and imagination in that first sentence. Because the, the contract is that that's the sentence that's supposed to keep them reading. So that's your, that's your big opportunity to like tap dance on stage, right? Everything else, you might have to be a chorus dancer in the back, but like your solo is your lead. So this is not the lead. I'm just gonna read a little bit of this sentence. This is, I, I mentioned at the beginning, the Kenyan government shut down the police stations. This is a, a, a story about when they did it. It was late Wednesday night, an Orwellian storm, that was an editor, an Orwellian storm had whipped across Kenya's capital and Linus Kakai, who's an editor, was caught in it. Hours earlier, he and two colleagues were tipped by police that officers were heading to their newsroom to arrest all three. None knew when it would happen or why exactly. In Kenya, you generally hear the charges only when you appear in court, but they all had a pretty good idea. One day earlier, they'd broadcast the highest stakes political opposition gathering in recent memory, defying warnings from President Uhuru Kenyatta. For months, Kenyans had been on edge. And as, I'm not gonna read the whole thing, but if you just look at the first sentence of every paragraph, you'll see that like the, the, as we go through paragraphs, the voice gets newsier and newsier and newsier, right? Like, I'm getting more and more to the point of the story, which is about 
uh, the Kenyan government being uh, uh, defiant of free press and all that kind of thing. Um, and also the politics of, of what was going on. Here, here was the lead. Sitting in his office, Linus Kaikai ate peanuts and tried to decide how best to be arrested by the police officers he thought were lurking outside the newsroom. What are the chances they'll storm the place? He, uh, Mr. Kakai, who leads the newsroom at Nation Television, asked a room full of allies, lawyers, fellow journalists, activists. Um, and someone tried to rewrite this to simplify it. Um, and I, 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 I pouted because <laughs> I really liked this. It was, I, I, ha I had heard that, that um, the police were gonna go shut down Nation TV. I had a friend over there. And so I just drove there and talked my way past security and went up to the newsroom and said, I hear you guys are gonna get arrested. I'm from the New York Times. Do you mind if I sit here so I can report about it when it happens? They were like, Karibu Sana, welcome. Um, and so, and no one had time to talk to me because everyone was like strategizing with lawyers and, and all this sort of thing, right? So I did that thing that you have to get good at when you're doing long-term narrative projects, right? Be becoming invisible. You need people to forget you're there, which is like the only white lady in a newsroom who nobody's seen before was not exactly easy. Um, and I, I, Mr. Kakai, I just need a second. Linus Kakai was the, the managing editor of the biggest news television station in Kenya, but he also was a guy who'd put out, a, he, he was the chair of an editor's guild who'd put out a very strong statement condemning the president for shutting down the TV stations. So this was really retaliation for that, we thought. And him in particular was the voice I needed, not just whoever was gonna be jailed. By the, there were two reporters and that was important, but this guy was the, the quote you needed, right? Can I just can I just have a second? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm coming. I'm coming. Okay. Oh, don't forget me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm coming. I'm coming. Okay. Well, just uh, come here. Come here. Come here. Come here. Okay. And then a lawyer walks in, and then like Amnesty International director comes in, and then like, you know, a guy who's best friends with the former Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, and they all just sit down and start talking as men do, about like what to do. And I was like, what? What? What did you say? Oh, well, okay. So what are you going to do if that happens? And just sort of inserted myself into the situation. And he was so chill about it. And that, that uh, from my interpretation, was he, Linus Kakai was so relaxed. He was just like chomping on some peanuts. He, I think he had some cookies laying around too. I just thought, this is extraordinary. Um, so it was really important to me, not only that that lead happened as it did, but that the peanuts were in there. Um, and so the trick here is the details, right? I don't know, I mean, I'm not giving you the whole story, so it's hard to, to see, but I don't know if you'd agree with me that, that I accomplished what I was trying to accomplish here, but being alive to the little details in the moment of the reporting, and then remembering to write them in my notebook, which is usually the real battle, um, and then figuring out how to use them later, which is to say when I had to write this in 45 minutes because the internet means you have to be first. Um, that's the trick. And the whole reason that I want to unpack these little narrative tricks that you can use in the course of deadline reporting is that if you decide that you're going to look for them, even when you're not doing a narrative, you get better at them and you get faster at them. And then they're there for you to use in better and more sophisticated ways as you, as you do this stuff. Um, so that, that, that was the lead of that story where I had, that's the only place I feel like in most stories in the New York Times where you have latitude is for voices is, is in the lead. Um, here's an example from Buzzfeed 
uh, is a story called This is What Happens When You're Beaten by Your Husband at a Refugee Center. That's a very BuzzFeed headline, right? It sounds horrible to say out loud, but um, this is about uh, women who uh, had arrived in, in Germany as refugees and who couldn't access the domestic violence resources that were s everyone insisted were available to them, but actually weren't for complicated investigative reasons. But here was the lead. Her husband also beat her in Syria. Not as often, not as badly, which is to say that back there, he'd never tried to strangle her. That only started here, in the country that promised safety and freedom. Maybe better, she thought, to have stayed back in Damascus, bombs be damned. And the rest of it is kind of voicey, too. Um, the, 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 the conversation that I had with my editor about this, the change that, that I'm pouting a lot. I, I really, I'm, the thing I pouted for in this story was the also. Her husband also beat her in Syria. Is I, the editor did the traditional thing where you ax the adverbs, right? Which is generally a good rule. But for me, that was important for two reasons. One was, I thought that for the reader, the story had already started. The story, because BuzzFeed is online, right? The story starts with the headline. This is what happens when you're beaten by your husband at a refugee center. We know exactly what we're talking about. Then we have the deck that gives us the context. She escaped from Syria only to be abused, da 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 da, da right? So by the time you get to my lead, you're actually already, what is that, 60 words into a story, right? So I felt that I needed to do something that didn't just repeat what you'd heard in some sort of semi-dramatic fashion, but continued it. Um, and that became, this. we started experimenting with, or I did, um, experimenting with that in the writing as I, as I uh, once I realized that's what I was doing, as I moved forward. Seeing like, if you take for granted the thing that we all have to take for granted because it's the reason we write headlines and decks, which is the reader read them, and it convinced them to read the lead. And so you assume that the lead is the third thing they encounter in your story, not the first. How does that change how you write? Um, and can you do more to keep people going? That was one reason it was important. The other reason it was important is because I knew I was treading into very touchy territory about Western stereotypes about Muslim Arab men, right? Um, and their, 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 uh, the stereotypical idea of their innate violence, especially when it, when it happens to women. And this is before like the AF day and the far right stuff across Europe like really got started. But I knew that already we, were, we had stereotype problems and so, I wanted to think about trying to connect what I was writing to a sense that there's continuity here, right? This isn't like I've suddenly encountered this, this person and this like dramatic moment of violence I'm gonna tell you because I just saw it, right? I wanted to imply continuity um, because I thought that would help with the stereotype issues. So that's another example of using your writer's voice. Okay, if you have a question for Lane or would like to suggest a podcast topic, please email it to writelane at tampabay.com. That's W-R-I-T-E-L-A-N-E at TampaBay.com. Join us next week on Wednesday morning for the next podcast. This podcast was produced by Monica Herndon. Music was composed and performed by Dan DeGregory. Thanks for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.